This is Around the Rim with LaChina Robinson. Hello, basketball fans. It is your favorite time of the week. That's right, your ESPNW Women's Basketball Podcast, Around the Rim, coming at you with a brand new episode in You already know, Tariqa and I are excited about college basketball season. We've got lots to get to. I am your host, LaChina Robinson. Tariqa Foster-Brasby is my fabulous producer, and we've got a great show. Um, We are going to talk a little bit about Maryland. We've gotten to see the Terps up close and personal, both against South Carolina and against UConn, which they lost both games. But um, we'll put a little bit of a wrap on the heavy part of their their preseason schedule and also hear from head coach Brenda Freeze. Uh, Michelle Vopel is going to join the show in a moment and we have lots of things to talk about including the UConn Huskies as she has made her way to LA to see UConn take on the UCLA Bruins, a very intriguing team. Corey Close's group recently um, beating the Baylor Bears so we will talk about them in a moment as well. Um, But let's start out with our clipboard. First quarter. The New Mexico Lobos, Mike Bradbury's team, beat the number 16 team in the country, and that's the Marquette Golden Eagles. The Lobos were not ranked. They beat um, Carolyn Keeger's Marquette Eagles 88-87. to And I want to give a special shout-out to Jasa Nunn, and she is the guard for... Uh, New Mexico, who scored 39 points in that upset victory. She was 14 for 15 from the field with that 39 points. I should also mention that New Mexico is really making some strides in recruiting. They signed a top 20 class this year. Um, so shout out to Mike Bradbury, also one of my good friends, Aaron Grant, who was a fantastic point guard at Texas Tech, works on that staff. So we'll be keeping our eyes on the Lobos starting off their season with a big top 20 victory. Also on our clipboard, I wanted to go back because Michelle Clark heard, and we're going to get her on our show at some time uh, this year, but she has dominated Conference USA, head coach of the Western Kentucky um, Toppers. That's what that's what we call them anyway, the Toppers. It's technically Hilltoppers, but you know they let us call them the Toppers. But they upset earlier uh, in the season Missouri a few games ago, actually. And the reason why this is significant to me is, yes, Missouri is a team that I had ranked very high in my top 25, but also they are supposed to be right there in the battle for the SEC championship. And right now to discuss um, a little bit of Western Kentucky, but also Missouri, I want to bring in ESPNW writer Michelle Vopel to the show. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Lachina. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I've been out in California for a couple of days and um, it was really fun to see the atmosphere with uh, UCLA and Baylor, and it's going to be even a, a more uh, charged atmosphere when UConn uh, is going against UCLA. Oh, man, we've got lots of stuff to get to. We are happy that you are out in L.A. giving us the, the scoop. Um, so let's talk a little, just for a, a moment, uh, Western Kentucky, again, I mean, they had that big vi- victory against Missouri, but they have gone on to lose to Iowa, uh, played a close game against Notre Dame, and then they lost to Indiana. But um, Michelle Clark Hurd, in my opinion, does not get enough credit for what she's done. And she's she's got a fantastic uh, senior forward by the name of Tasia Brown, who I've seen up close and personal, who is just 
an amazing player, um, someone that is a must-see, especially this season as a senior. But what do you make of what Michelle Clark Hurd has done at Western, um, both in always upsetting top teams? I mean, they beat Louisville uh, in the last couple years, and they just always seem to be in the mix with, with some of the top teams in the country. I think that's a good way to put it. And what's nice to see about that is, as we know, this is a traditionally good women's basketball program going back many, many, many years. I mean, this is a you know team that went to the Final Four in 1992. And what she's been able to do is sort of restore um, some of that, you know, that sort of uh, – toughness and that ability to to believe you can play with anybody, which Western Kentucky used to have. So that's what's really neat to see there. And and I agree with you that that they really seem to rise to the occasion um, when they're the quote-unquote underdogs. Plus, at the same time, they've been very, very good in their conference. They have been very good in their conference. I should mention that Michelle Clark Hurd was a, a coach for USA or has been a coach for USA basketball the past few summers. So there is some national rec- recognition in terms of what she's been able to do. But I just love the fact that she's not afraid to go out and schedule, you know, the top teams in the country, you know, and that and that is something that we talk about often with these mid-majors, right? Like they end the season sometimes with a great conference record, but then when it comes to NCAA selectioning, and Charlie Cream could probably help us in this conversation as well, the mid-majors have to get out and play some of the big guys. I mean, is that how you see it? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I couldn't say that strongly enough because what happens is they don't get as much credit for their conferences as, say, teams from the SEC, um, from the Pac-12, um, from the Big 12, uh, they don't get that same amount of, of credit, even if they're really, really good teams. Now, we can debate back and forth whether that's fair or not. The reality is that's how it is. So you have to have some non-conference wins that stand out to the committee to help you with your seed. Otherwise, you know, we see these teams that I think are good teams, but they just keep getting those double-digit seeds. And it's hard for them to break into um, a path in the NCAA tournament that's a little bit more reasonable to expect a couple of wins. So getting a, you know, a non-conference win or two that really stands out can, is something that can help you come March. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't emphasize that enough, China. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt Western Kentucky that, um, you know, they did lose to Notre Dame. Again, they played them close. They got a lot of props from Muffin McGraw. They lost to an Iowa team and an Indiana team that – will have opportunities to raise their RPI as their conference season goes on, regardless of who they play in the non-conference. And that's the difference. These mid-majors, once they get into to conference season, you know, they don't have as many opportunities to play higher RPI teams. So you could go undefeated all you want, but really your chance to make your mark is, is in the non-conference. So you have to be willing to challenge your team. So shout out to Michelle Clark Hurd. And, and you're absolutely right about, um, you know, just – the tradition at Western Kentucky, but we'll get her on the show at some time. We got to move on. Um, Texas state wanted to give a shout out to Taylor deer. Uh, we did not get to mention this last week, but against Texas tech, she had 44 points. Anytime a player has 44 points, we are raising the roof. So um, big game there for Taylor deer. Now another big mid, I would say mid major win, but we hadn't really decided where we're putting the big East in the scope of this conversation, but a more recent upset Villanova Harry Peretta's Wildcats I mean this guy is a legend um in coaching has been doing it longer than I've been alive but don't tell Harry I said that 
But the Villanova Wildcats upset the Duke Blue Devils. Now, let's share some numbers here. Now, let's talk about Duke for a moment. They come into this season. They have two, in my opinion, one is more of a dark horse, but two um, candidates for ACC Player of the Year, definitely Lexi Brown, and she was she was accredited with that in the preseason, the ACC preseason, the Player of the Year. And then also Rebecca Greenwell. So they've got a veteran backcourt of two uh, of the best players in the country, in my opinion. I, I enjoy watching both of them play. Um, they did lose some of their front court depth, Michelle. And so I think we came into this season with the understanding that Duke would need to, to grow a little bit in their front court in terms of the experience. But this is a, a top 15 team in the country. I mean, ranked number 11 in the AP poll, and Villanova beat them 64-55. to 55. Um, What comes to your mind when you first heard a, about this upset, Michelle? I thought, you know, it's, it's Harry Peretta and Villanova again. You know, this is what they do. They have played the same style um, forever. Um, you know, I think back in the 1800s, <laughs> they were right. doing this. Uh, but they do what they do really well. And if you play them, you've got to know that. You you have to realize they are going to spread the floor. They're going to shoot a lot of three-pointers. They're going to, you know, make try to make you play at their pace. It was interesting what you said earlier because it's so true. How do we how do we view the Big East teams now? And ever since the breakup of the old Big East, it's been like that because these former Big East teams, when they were a major, you know, now some of them are in the new Big East, which is a quote unquote mid major. We don't really know what to call it. Um, but those teams that for years, like Villanova, played against UConn in their conference, played against Notre Dame. Um, those teams benefited, I think, a lot from playing those top teams. Obviously, Rutgers was in there, too. So I think it's that combination of Villanova, um, and certainly Harry Perrette is so used to playing the top teams and trying to make sure that he has the upper hand in terms of strategy and pace of the game. And I think that's what happened. Duke played at Villanova's pace, and when you when you do that and you can't stop them from outside, you're, you're probably going to get upset, and that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, I still sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I miss the days of the old Big East, right, uh, because mm-hmm. they were so good. I mean, the days when, when, when Georgetown was dominant under uh, Terry Williams-Flanoy, and you had Louisville, you had West Virginia, Mike Carey, Villanova, as you mentioned, their style of play, UConn, obviously, Notre Dame. I mean, everyone was good top to bottom. Uh, but what what happened during that time is that teams like Villanova, did not have the access, and Harry's always played this system, don't get me wrong, but they didn't have the access to the level of talent that some of those other teams have. So they had Mm -hmm. to go about playing a style that would challenge um, some of the top teams in order to stay in the mix. And he has always played slow the game up, he wants multiple passes. He's going to use the entire shot clock if necessary. They play in the gas defensively, so they're not a high-risk, high-reward. They're a low-turnover team, and it's so hard to prepare to play them. It's almost an annoying style of play because you're not going to get very many possessions in the game. And you look at the score for Duke, and in the third quarter, they had eight points. And this is not a, like I said, Villanova is not a blow you away with their steals and quickness and athleticism defensive team. They know their scout. They play the gaps. 
And and not to mention, they do have a lot of talent. I wanted to say this on, on this year's roster. They do have Jenna Tucker, the transfer from Tennessee. And Kelly Jaycott, I've watched her play, and she is an amazing player. Eight for 14 for the field, had 23 points, but it was her seven for nine from three-point land that really did it. And they're not afraid to put up the three. They had 15 three-pointers. If you don't get out there and guard them, they're going to force your bigs to come out and set screens. It's an uncomfortable way to play. Um, So Harry Peretta, we want to send you a big shout-out. Congratulations for Duke. They definitely have some growing to do. I mean, we mentioned their two primary players. Lexi Brown ended the night with 16 points, but Rebecca Greenwell only had nine. And with a younger interior game, or let's see, less experienced interior, they're going to need someone to step up and help Greenwell and Brown. And, you know, only time will tell who that is. Leanna Odom did have 13 points and 12 rebounds. But um, congrats to the Big East and also to Harry Peretta because that's going to bode well as the conference season goes on. Second quarter. All right. So we're going to move on. I've done a lot of talking. Um, the first thing we want to do is talk about our game of the week that just took place between Maryland and UConn. And to help us do that, we're going to listen to a soundbite of Gino Oriema, who joined Eric Freed and Andy Landers after their win over the Terps. Coach Landers said perhaps you, you, know, you gave Gabby Williams a nice hug at halftime, like it's going to be okay when you know, turnovers piling up. Was it? kind or the first thing I gotta no, say the first I, thing I you said at halftime you would hug her you'd talk to Jesus. her about it later which was man it? man <laughs> I don't even need speakers for these guys <laughs> well you know um, after I did my rant but I did anymore you know as I've gotten older I do my rant to the coaches and then when we're walking out CD goes listen now make sure you give Gabby some warm and fuzzies, but don't go in there. Because <laughs> 20 years ago, I don't think Gabby would have come out for the second half. So you but, mellowed a little bit? Uh, a little bit, you know. I, because every time I turned around to say something to one of the coaches about, like, what was that? Before I got finished saying it, she would steal it and get a layup. Or she'd yeah. make a great play yeah. and get us another layup, another shot, another shot. So... Yeah, this wasn't a typical line for Gabby, and uh, she's trying really, really hard to make plays, and we just try to get her to calm down a little bit. Don't try so hard. But it felt like today, for better or for worse, she had a hand on the basketball on yeah. all 94 feet every yeah. single play of the game, defensive yeah. or offense. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we talked about before the game is without Lou, you know, I don't know that our half-court offense is going to be as good. So what has to happen is our transition game's got to be better. So in order to get our transition game started, we've got to get some turnovers. Some turnovers. And I thought we, we've created a lot of turnovers these three games, and I think we got to keep that up. Okay, so a, little, uh, some, a couple things to talk about here, uh, Michelle. And let's start out with Katie Lou Samuelson, who um, suffered a foot injury. What do you know about Katie Lou, her current status, and obviously – um, you know, as they look forward to taking on UCLA, how that has impacted this team. Well, what Gino Oriama said uh, yesterday after the game to the Connecticut reporters is he's expecting she may be out as long as three games. Um, that sounded like almost a minimum. So she's not going to be playing um, against UCLA, which is a shame because she's that's her hometown game. You know, she's from the greater Los Angeles area actually considered UCLA. That was one of the schools that she, you know, was in her final list. 
and she's going to have a lot of friends and family there. So that's unfortunate. She won't get to play so close to home when she plays, you know, on the other side of the country in college. But what Coach Oram has said about how their half-court offense looks different, I am sure you saw that too, LaChina. And, and it became a domino effect thing in terms of why uh, Gabby had so many turnovers. She's trying so hard to get the transition game going. And she's also handling the ball in situations that she probably wouldn't be handling it um, if Katie Lou was on the court with her. So I do think that has an impact on them. And, and you know, they still won the game. You know, they still have, oh, wow, you, you don't have Katie Lou Samuelson. You can bring in Azure Stevens um, to start instead. And so does it impact them? Yes. Does it impact them enough that somebody like a UCLA can really take advantage of it? That's what's going to be interesting to see on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm never worried about Gabby Williams. And that's, you know, I mean, yes, she had 10 turnovers. That's a lot of turnovers. And UConn is usually a low turnover team. But you're right, when you take a key piece out of the rotation, especially one um, who is a junior, who is it does handle the ball quite a bit, who's a huge part of your offense. And sometimes we see that in Gabby, right, because she's so athletically talented and understands the game. She is trying to make something happen at all times. But, um, you know, when you're trying to find that rhythm, she's a senior, you know, obviously big expectations for her in this lineup, her along with Kia. So I think, you know, she was just maybe more anxious and trying to make things happen. But it, it does concern me because I'll tell you this, when we watched when we've watched Katie Lou, and I think I told you this the day we sat next to each other and watched and play Stanford, she looks so different to me. Like her sense of urgency, um, especially on the defensive end, she can cause so many matchup problems. She's so long and athletic. And, you know, Gino even told Tarika and I flat out at the beginning of the season that he thinks that Katie Lou Samuelson is their best player or will be their best overall player. So what happens then against UCLA? What are you expecting or what are you looking forward to in this matchup against the Bruins? I think one of the things that really stands out that's going to be so fascinating to watch is the point guard matchup because Jordan Canada is a senior. She's, you know, done, she's grown so much as a player and as a leader. She's so excited to watch. And then you look at the player who has just exploded at the start of her sophomore season and been phenomenal. And, and I think is like, you just can't take your eyes off of her. And that's Crystal Dangerfield. She's in just great shape. I mean, you can tell how hard that kid worked. She's in great shape. She's so confident now, you know, as a player. And just seeing those two on the court together is going to be a lot of fun watching that. But then it's going to be a matter of can UCLA, because they're trying to do a lot of the same things that UConn tries to do in terms of their offense, can they do that um, consistently against a team like Connecticut? They were able to do it against Baylor, but Baylor, to be fair, didn't have Lauren Cox, their second-leading scorer, who was ill, and obviously didn't have Kim Mulkey because of the, the family tragedy that uh, that Coach Mulkey, you know, had with losing her grandchild. So, and I'm not taking anything away from UCLA's win, but Baylor wasn't Baylor at a hundred percent. UConn won't be at 100% because Katie Lou Samuelson won't be in the lineup. So how will that impact how UCLA plays them? And I I think it's going to be a really fascinating matchup, both individually and these two teams. Yeah, I think I think right away, Azrae Stevens becomes important, right? As she Mm -hmm. did in in the Maryland game, Um, starting in that game. 
18 points, 12 rebounds, and you're looking at having to deal with the likes of Monique Billings, who is one of my favorite players, who I, you know can really wreak havoc. Um, she had 21 points against Baylor. But then you're right about this point guard matchup, and as you listen to Gino talk about pushing pace, my expectation is that they're going to look to pressure more. You know, I, I think they're going to try to speed up the, the, the pace of the game, especially with Jordan Canada getting the ball out of her hands. Crystal Dangerfield is outstanding in, in pressuring the basketball. Um, and so if your half-court offense is not as good, which when you don't have a prolific three-point shooter to uh, Katie Lou's level, yeah, you have to look to do some things differently. You may have to look to go inside. So that will be interesting to see how Azaree Stevens responds. I don't think that Gabby Williams will have uh, 10 turnovers and, you know, just how the, how the group performed overall. But this is another thing, and we do want to send our condolences to Kim Mulkey um, and, and her family and obviously Mackenzie Fuller now because she's married and, and her husband and, and their family of the loss of, of Kim Mulkey's grandchild. Um, but you're right. So so Baylor was not at, at full strength. Um but it was great for UCLA, in my opinion, to get a win over a team like Baylor for their national resume or even just, hey, if you want to establish yourself as one of the top teams in the country, you've got to beat the Baylors. And what what does this UConn game mean for UCLA with the high expectations ahead of them to win the Pac-12 and to, to be there really deep in, into March this year? I think it means something both for the program as a whole, which is the excitement that's going to be in, in the gym. And, uh, and they've sold a lot of tickets. They're, they're going to have an enormous crowd there. And that's going to be really nice for UCLA to experience that. What we know is that those types of things tend to play in UConn's hands, though. They love the huge crowds on the road. They always, in some ways, it seems to energize them um, as just as much as it does the other team, but I think that's great for UCLA to have that experience that they're going to have. Um, I also think, what, you know, what you said about pace is going to be really interesting to see because with UConn, they almost, the faster the better for them, right? They, they're almost right. never going to be playing too fast because they that's just, they excel at that. Can UCLA sort of, like, keep up with that because they are, they're a fast team too. They're, they're very good at a lot of the same things. So I think a big thing for them is can they do the things they do well? Corey Close talked about that a lot um, after the Baylor game. She's like, this is what we really have to test ourselves on. Can we do what we do well against the very best? And if they can do that, that's going to you know lead a long way towards potentially winning you know, the, uh, the the Pac-12. And let's be honest, LaChina, one thing we're looking at with this team because of the two seniors with, uh, with Jordan Cannon and Monique Billings, UCLA has never made the NCAA Women's Final Four. They, they won uh, the championship back in the Annie Myers days with the AIW. But that's something this program really wants. You know, to, to be in that Final Four, we've had, we've had different Pac-12 teams elevate to that, you know, with, with Oregon State, you know, with, with Washington, um, making, you know, final four runs. That's really what in the back of everybody's mind is, can this UCLA team be that type of team? And, you know, playing UConn early, that's going to do nothing but help them to, to try to aspire to that. Yeah, I mean, it, UCLA is a brand, and you're right. I mean, it, you know, when you think about the history of their success, 
there's a lot of expectations, you know, going back to Corey Close having the number one recruiting class, um, you know, and the talent that has matriculated through this program in the last few years um, due to the to the great recruiting. So, you mm-hmm. know, Corey's been able to get in now and kind of put her system in. She's got players. I, I think this is a really big moment. Um, I think it's a it's a it's obviously they're very capable of beating UConn. But at the very least, they need to perform well for their fans, for their legacy. Um, and even, you know, for the Pac-12, I mean, Oregon just took a hit losing to Louisville. Um, you know, and, and I say they took a hit because this is a team that everyone had such high expectations for. And they didn't play necessarily well. Um, you know, and a little credit to Louisville in terms of their ability to pressure. And, and Oregon's still young. I think we forget that. But coming off of last season... You know, I think my expectations were definitely a little bit higher than what we ultimately saw. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think it's a big moment. I think it's a big moment for for UCLA and should be a great matchup. Michelle, we want you to hang with us because we're going to come back in the fourth quarter to talk to you a little bit about WNBA news um, as it pertains to the New York Liberty. Um, You wrote a fantastic piece. We want to talk a little bit about what is happening with that franchise. Uh, But, fans, don't forget, you can subscribe download, leak comments, reviews, whatever you like on Around the Rim, um, either on our ESPN app or Apple Podcasts. You can also tweet us any questions, concerns, suggestions. Um, my Twitter handle is at LaChina Robinson. Tarika is at Sports underscore. Just use the hashtag Around the Rim no matter what you want to share um, so we can interact with you. So, again, we will be back after this break with head coach of the Maryland Terrapins, Brenda Freeze. Third quarter. We're going to kick it to Brenda Freeze. The other part of that UConn-Maryland game, obviously, is that the Maryland Terrapins were out on the floor. And I, I just want to... Send Brenda some love first and foremost because it's not easy, you know, when you look at the losses to her roster from last year to this year, both in, in losing two um, All-Americans to the WNBA and then also, um, you know, transfer it, it, with, with Destiny Slocum. They're, I mean, goodness, they're young. And for Brenda to be very optimistic about, hey, we've already got South Carolina and UConn on the schedule We're not at full tilt, but we can get better. And for them to go out and compete, I thought was great. Um, Obviously, Kyla Charles is is the big, the player that is going to be their go-to player. They really don't have any choice, only a sophomore. But she did have 29 points against UConn, was 13 for 22. Right now, we're going to kick it to our interview and learn a little bit more about Maryland and what Brenda Freeze's expectations are. Well, fans, it is that time of year with college basketball where we are excited to welcome in um, the best coaches in the game, the, the best players in the game. And, you know, it's our goal with Around the Rim to give you just some insight that you won't get in other places. Now, this program um, that we have on today is well covered. Um, the Maryland Terrapins have done a fantastic job from a media perspective. They've, I believe, still got their own show um, and so we get to learn a lot about the terms, but we never take for granted an opportunity to have head coach Brenda Freeze on our show. Welcome, Brenda. Oh, well, thanks for having me, LaChina. I'm looking forward to it. Now, now, do you still have the show under the shell? We do. We do. It's hard to believe uh, going into our 15th year with the show. So I think it debuts again at the end of November and then uh, follows us through the entire season. 
Yeah, I love that show. I mean, it's it's all access. It's so well done. It's so it's like you know we have to kind of try to find secrets that um, weren't already revealed on the show because they do such a good job of just telling the story of the season. Um, it's always something I look forward to. But welcome to the show. And you know, gosh, it's it's this has become the norm, right? That your team is always amongst the top teams in the country. Uh, I'm looking at AP rankings, number fifteen. Pick number two in the Big Ten behind Ohio State. When you look at your roster and kind of the youth and what you've graduated, does it ever just shock you or is it more of an honor that people hold you in such high regard uh, year after year? Yeah, you know, I, I have to admit I was, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised and am honored uh, in terms of where they selected us this season. I mean, not that, uh, as we know as coaches, that it means anything, but I think, you know, obviously due to the losses that we had, the, you know, two All-Americans graduating on and going into the pros, and, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, with, with the youth that we currently still have uh, that is going to have to play a major part this season, uh, you know, I I do think it speaks volumes and hopefully in terms of the consistency of the level of our program. Yeah, it does. I mean, I know year in and year out, it's always, okay, the Maryland Terrapins are going to be there. And I think it's a great job, obviously, that you've done in coaching your team, but also in recruiting. So let's talk a little bit about how this year's team is shaping up versus last season. Now, last year you guys finished 32-3, and um, Big Ten champs, which you've been both regular season and tournament titles, um, third in a row. But you you have lost some key pieces. You had some transfers, including Destiny Slocum, but you also lost Brianna Jones and Shatori Walker-Kimbrough to the WNBA. So in terms of how this team is shaping up, both in identity and some of the key players that you think will – be a major part of your success this year. Tell us how things are coming together. Well, you know, I think, you know, two years ago, people remember that uh, we had the number one ranked recruiting class in the country and we had signed six players and uh, those freshmen had come in and uh, with four of the six remaining, uh, the one thing I, I can really say about that class is it's legit. I mean, all four right now are, um, really competing at an extremely high level. So, um, although I think at times this year, you know, they need to, to get the experience and, and the number of games under their belt, but I do think it bodes well for our future and our program that those four, Kyla Charles, Stephanie Jones, Blair Watson, Sarah Myers, uh, really are, are an incredible, you know, nucleus and, and going to have a huge impact on, on uh, determining our season this year. Yeah, you mentioned Charles, and, and from the outside, and only you would know if this is actually going to come to pass, but it sounds like most people believe that she'll be your best player. She's just named to the Ann Meyer Drysdale um, list, preseason list, mm-hmm. uh, coming into this season. What have you seen in growth from her? Only a sophomore, so that's important to remember as well. But what have you seen from her going from last year to this season? Well, it's exciting. I mean, I, I saw it last year, and obviously she had to be patient with Shatori and Bree and, and as seniors, but um, like all the greats that we've had, the Alyssa Thomases of the world and uh, Shatori Walker-Kimbrough, Bree Jones, and, and all the Marissa Coleman, she she has that it factor. I mean, she wants the responsibility. She wants to be the go-to player for us. Uh, she's really, I mean, extended, you know, last year played a lot of the forward position for us. And now 
I can move her around the entire court. So she's rebounding, taking the ball in transition like Alyssa Thomas did. She's worked on her range uh, all the way out to the three-point line. So I'm really, really excited to, to see the, the uh, window of opportunity for her this season. And you've done this before with, with previous teams, but we have a lot of coaches that listen um, to our podcast. And I'm just, I'm just curious and if you could share some insight with us. How, what is your strategy in terms of taking a player that was more of a role player when you look at the major three pieces you had last year, mm-hmm. and now you're kind of expecting her to carry a load? What is that progression like? And not only how you handle her every day, but um, helping her to understand the shift in mentality. How do you take a player um, from from A to B that way. Well, I, I, you know, I think one of the things that that I love that that our program is able to do is, you know, we develop players, right? And you know, not always are, are we as fortunate to be able to get maybe a, a top number one player in the country, but but somewhere out there where I feel like we develop our players. And within that process, uh, within that time, there is a process. You know, Kyla Charles wasn't ready for that a year ago. And fortunately for her, she had two All-Americans ahead of her that, that could help her kind of through that process. But uh, she's more than ready, more than capable. And, and so that responsibility now, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, we, we you know, we didn't have her as much last year rebounding and taking the ball the length of the floor. Now she has, you know, the green light, any opportunity she gets, she's pushing. So uh, she wasn't ready for that a year ago, but uh, definitely this season is more, is, is more than capable. Well, I'm definitely excited to watch her play. And out just selfishly, a couple other players I know uh, that that I love on your roster. Now, it, it's hard to pick, but I'm a big Aisha Small <laughs> fan going all the way back to her, her high school days. And I know that she won't be eligible until Christmas, but Krista Naki, uh, December 20th, I'll be excited about her debuting with the Maryland Terrapins, the Howley Tided transfer coming from Florida. I had this conversation with Muffet McGraw, um, actually a national media, day because she has taken her first transfer ever into their program um, for this season. But what are your thoughts on just what's happening with transfers and, and has your philosophy changed at all in terms of what, how you recruit or how you look at, you know, the classes that are, are moving forward based on what we're seeing with, with some of the transfer rates, but also early departures, right, um, into the WNBA, which is something that it usually is only happening with the top players, but those are the kind you have in your program. So how do you as a coach prepare for all of those aspects? (laughs) Well, that's a million-dollar question, LaChina, and, um, you know, it's not going away. (laughs) If anything, you better, as a coach, uh, you know, be ready to understand it and, and move forward with it. So, um, having said that, obviously, when you lose the transfers out of your program, you, you take a hit. There's no question uh, in, in terms of being prepared. I, I, I think similar to what Muffet said is uh, it's a two-year hit in your program when, when you have uh, those players transfer out. But at the same point, we've been fortunate on the flip side to have the transfers come in, like you alluded to, Aisha Small and um, you know, Eliana Kristanaki are, are huge pieces to come into our program to help us as we've had to, to fill some gaps through the transfers. So um, we've also benefited on the other side. So, um, like I said, I, I don't think it's going away. I think you just have to continue to do what's best for your program. I am 
very selective, though, in, in the sense of just maintaining chemistry. And I think that is, is a really important piece is, is trying to maintain your chemistry. We have 10 players this season. And, you know, I, you know, for us, our, our chemistry is probably the highest it's ever been. So, you know, we want to be cautious where, you know, we're just not selecting anyone or, or vice versa, in ter- you know, within our program. Yeah, that numbers game is interesting, Brenda, because <laughs> I've had this conversation as well with several coaches and just that, you know, there have been some teams with smaller numbers that seem to have more <laughs> success, right? Because you're not worried about whether or not 10 through 15 is happy, right? Especially when you've got talent, talented depth the way you do in, in other top programs. But also, you know, in terms of on floor, on the floor chemistry, like, Take the Minnesota Lynx, for example. You know, their their five starters have played a ton of minutes together. So how they play together, their knowledge of where, um, you know, their teammate is going to be on the floor, where they like the ball, all those things, sometimes in smaller numbers are easier to to develop, right? But then, you, you God forbid, you have injuries or you have transfers <laughs> and things like that. And the number game is not as fun as it once looked, right? <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's a dicey situation that we're all juggling. And uh, I agree. I, I enjoy the smaller numbers. I mean, you know, would love to, you know, keep your roster at about 11. Um, you know, I think, you know, makes sense. But, you know, it is. It's, it's harder elements that, that uh, we're having to, to navigate through, uh, you know, that, that we're all having to work through. Yeah, I definitely understand that. So I wanted to talk to you about your summer because um, one exciting thing that happened for your team is you guys participated in the World University Games in Taiwan. But not only did you do that, you represented the U.S., which I think is such a, a unique situation. You got a chance to play with the FIBA rules, um, got some cool Under Armour uniforms. Tell us about that experience, how it came about, and, and kind of how you feel like your team benefited, not just on the court, but from the experience in general. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was obviously first and foremost an incredible honor uh, to not only, you know, have your university and your team selected, but uh, to be able to represent your your entire country in the World University Games. So uh, when a phone call was placed to us, uh, you know, we felt like, you know, I mean, obviously (laughs) uh, we said yes and, 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 uh, you know, did not, you know, wanted to put our best foot forward in Taiwan. So, um, you know, I, I think for us, I mean, obviously, as you alluded to, that we've had we've had a lot of changes in the off season and the graduation of our two pros. So, you know, it, it's it's a roster that only returns, you know, two starters. So that uh, the opportunity to practice all summer, the opportunity to, to go out and within international competition, uh, you know, you can't script that in your summer and uh, with the summer access package. So I think it really gave us a, a big head start. You know, we have a freshman and a sophomore, very young point guards, uh, assuming that responsibility and what that's going to look like for us this season. So uh, I was telling Shanice Lewis just yesterday uh, when we were talking as, as we get ready, you know, for this upcoming season, she's prepared. Uh, she's ahead of the curve and has played so many games under her belt. And uh, you, you can't even, you know, when you just talk about the chemistry, you know, it's a 15 hour flight. Uh, we were staying in the Olympic village in, uh, you know, less than I, deal uh, quarters. Uh, so, <laughs> right. you know, some of those bonding moments um, really put us ahead, you know, in terms of from a travel end and a chemistry end with our team. 
Yeah, that I mean, it just looked like an awesome opportunity. And you're right. I think that's what people forget is that, yes, you get to travel internationally, you get to represent your country, but there's, you know, it takes some getting used to, whether it's your living quarters or even, uh, you know, what they're offering for the delicacy of the day is sometimes <laughs> interesting, too, with other countries. But you, you've done this and, you you know, you, you've traveled internationally with the game of basketball. I just think it was so cool. Um, you know, to represent the U.S. and once again says a lot about your program. Um, you know that they chose you guys. Was there anything from from the FIBA rules that you would like to see incorporated here in, in the U.S. with our rules? Any any you wanted to take home with you? Oh gosh, um, you know, I mean, there was obviously a lot of adjustments for us when you talk about uh, you know the shot clock, uh, you know, twenty four seconds. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know the the speed of the game. Uh, you know there were there were you know the substitution patterns. Um, a lot of tweaks. I, I've got to say I like the the college game. Uh, you know, luckily I think moving to the quarters really uh, helped prepare us. You know, for for that international game. But um, I'm not sure college quite yet is ready for a 24 second. Uh, shot clock. I thought that was uh, a pretty fast movement. Uh, it makes sense, I think, in the WNBA, but but not quite yet for college. Yeah, I I, I definitely, when, I, when college basketball starts, I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness, this is a huge difference because I'm calling WNBA all summer. The game's like, pew, 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 and it definitely slows down a lot. But I think, you know, obviously considering the skill level of WNBA players, it's, it's just a very different game. And speaking of which, um, gosh, I just not a night goes by in the WNBA that I'm not calling out a Maryland Terrapin. I mean, Brenda, you've got to be so proud of the way your kids have represented the game at the next level. Uh, you know, from Alyssa Thomas and what she's done this year as an all-star or Christy Tolliver, obviously, winning a championship. I mean, the list goes on from Lang to uh, every <laughs> night I feel like I'm calling a, a Terp's name. Uh, what do you think has been the thing that you have been most proud of in seeing how your players have, have represented in the WNBA? You know, just how seamlessly they've acclimated and adjusted. And I think that is a big thing in our program is just having our student athletes ready for what's next, you know, when they graduate college and whether it's WNBA or C's or their, their actual, you know, uh, you know, other professions that they're going into that they're ready. And in those four years as a coaching staff, did we prepare them for real life? And, you know, it is, it does make me proud that, that, uh, you know, they're able to acclimate their low maintenance. Uh, when I talk to coaches and GMs and, uh, agents, you know, they, they, you know, know how to conduct themselves and, uh, are really prepared. And, and then when they come back, you know, Marissa Coleman, uh, is not going overseas until January and she's back, you know, training with our strength coach and then with our, you know, trainer and, 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 uh, you know, at a practices on occasion. So, you know, just that they come back and, and how much that extension uh, from Maryland, you know, really matters. Yeah. I mean, I second that emotion that I, I just feel like your players, they just, they're just a, a, so pleasant to cover, I'll say, at the WNBA level. And, and obviously they're great on the court, but um, also great people as well. Now, before I let you go, Coach, um, wanted to talk about your incoming recruiting class. and really just have a question about recruiting in general. Um, you know, your incoming class is now number four in the nation by ESPN. And Shakira, I hope I'm saying that right. Is it yeah. Shakira Austin? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I got a chance to watch her this summer uh, play for Boo Williams. Actually, I saw you up in Chicago, which was nice for us to have a chance to visit. <laughs> um, and it was crazy. It wasn't even really about basketball. It was like how I could get some balance in my life. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate all of your advice. But um, she was outstanding. I mean, so athletic and fun to watch. But when it comes to recruiting, you know, the thing that you maybe heard 10 years ago about women's basketball was, you know, there's not a lot of top, top talent, and, and those kids go to the same programs. Are you seeing any changes in that? Like, I would say your your program is one of those that consistently gets the top talent, but do you feel like the game is growing in a sense that, um, you know, there's changes in, in what these athletes are deciding to do, like maybe not always going to the big school, or is there just more talent overall? Like, how do you feel about the recruiting landscape right now in our game? You know, you know, I think it's it, it's coming. I think it's it, it's it's further ahead a little bit than than what it was back uh, ten years ago. I think uh, the talent level and and really right, it's it's about the depth of those numbers of of the kids that can really change the game. And so I do think you know our sport again is not as old as on the men's side. So when you talk about uh, those numbers increasing and going into programs, uh, you know, where they can make a difference across the board, uh, you know, you're slowly starting to, to see that take place. And, and that's pretty exciting to, you know, be able to, to have that with, with uh, you know, the, the ability to have some parity in our sport. Yeah, I do feel like there definitely is increased parity. And I just feel like even with changes to our media, social media, you know, the, the, the landscape is definitely not evening out when when you think about, you know, how much maybe exposure men's basketball gets versus women. But now teams have the opportunity to handle their own messaging via social media, right? You don't have to be maybe the 99th team in the country that's trying to get media attention or trying to get exposure. You can really create your own buzz. And because we're finding a lot of recruits in that social media space and, you know, that's how they're learning and that's where they're doing just about everything, uh, it creates a, a, a unique space, I think, for some programs that wouldn't normally be on the map to kind of get their, their names out there from recruiting and other aspects. So that's been fun to see. Well, Coach, um, I'm going to have to let you go. Tarika is going to um, be uh, beeping in on my line in a minute. But I do want to say that you know, I was looking at your, your schedule, and, you know, I see UConn, I see South Carolina, and coming off of that conversation uh, uh, just about, you know, how your roster changes and maybe whether it's transfers or whatever, you may not be ready for what's to come. But one thing I will say about your program and, and how you do things is it doesn't matter who's available, who's on the court, you know, how much experience – you have this ability to motivate your team and to instill a confidence in them and a belief that they can win any game, any game, that I just have so much respect for. Like I, I would venture to say that your teams have won the game before you even leave the locker room. And, and so even though, again, I know there's some challenges with youth and some changes and things like that, don't count out the turf to do something major. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you got South Carolina defending champs, UConn pick number one. And whether it's just compete hard every possession or, you know, you pull it upset, I just appreciate your approach to the game and, and how your players come to fight every night. So thank you for bringing that to the game. And, and thanks for joining Around the Rim. We'll have to have you back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, LaChina. It really means a lot. And uh, anytime, we would love to come back. And please give your family our best. The other thing that that I love, your twin boys, your husband's involved. I still remember the stories of you, your free throw shooting contest at the Elks Club with your parents. So I, <laughs> your sister obviously We're coaching. going way back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
the way you bring family to the forefront with your program is something that always stands out to me. So give your family um, our best, and we look forward to seeing you this season. Awesome. I will. Thank you so much. <laughs> Fourth quarter. Out of bounds. Now, I say this is out of bounds, but it is still women's basketball and a big, big story in the world of women's basketball. But it's on the WNBA side. And I am bringing back right now Michelle Vopel, our fantastic um, ESPNW writer. And Michelle, big news out of New York. Um, Jim Dolan and MSG are parting ways with the New York Liberty. Um, he has decided to sell the team. And, and you wrote a fantastic piece what was your response upon hearing this news, and how do you think this impacts the WNBA? I think from a, when, you, when you sort of connect the dots of the things that have happened with MSG's business, you can kind of see that it, it was leading toward this. And what I mean by that is, and I'll try to make this really quick, you know, a couple of years ago, back in 2015, the business was split between the, the so-called entertainment part of the business, which includes the Liberty, the NBA's Knicks, and NHL's. Rangers and the media part, which is MSG Networks. And because a lot of the issues that affected, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, television industry in terms of, you know, cord cutting with cable, MSG Networks has, has really lost some of its value in the last few years. Uh, they've been trying to sell it. Uh, I, as early as this year, there were stories about how kind of desperately they wanted to, um, MSG wanted to sell that part of the business, that, that separate company now of MSG Networks. And they haven't had a lot of success with that. When you saw those stories, which when I did, in the back of your mind, you started to think, okay, if this continues, are we going to have a situation where eventually um, James Dolan starts trimming off other parts of his business? And I think that's, you know, that's what we ended up seeing. The Liberty was one of those things. I would contend the Liberty was never a real high priority for him, just based on how, you know, how the Liberty were tended to be treated from upper, upper management. But now, you know, they're trying to sell it. Everybody wants a team to stay in New York. Um, I had heard rumors that they might not have continued to play in the garden, even if MSG had continued to own them. So there was obviously some other movements going on there in terms of um, the, the money that the garden can make for concerts and other, you know, other events besides WNBA games. So there's a lot in play now, which is how important it is to have, if you will, a flagship, you know, franchise, even though they've never won a championship, still they are the New York franchise for the league and the league offices are in New York, where they're going to play, where they're going to practice. You know, they've, they've been practicing up in the, you know, in the white living and practicing up in the White Plains area where they have um, the Knicks have their own practice facility along with the Liberty. So all of those things have to be figured out. And then you sort of combine that with the fact that there was another sale you know, and, and movement of a franchise just, you know, a little earlier with, um, you know, with the San Antonio Stars moving to Las Vegas. So I think in both cases, these were situations where management on the NBA side, if you will, or on the, you know, the, the conglomerate of the, the NBA and the different businesses that, uh, you know, in the star situation that they own in San Antonio, they they decided that the WNBA was just not what they were as interested in managing anymore. And so, you know, now you hope in the case of the Stars the, um, with MGM Resort, they have a real commitment to trying to, you know, trying to establish a franchise in Las Vegas. 
and then we wait and see who who steps forward, you know, as a buyer. And then, and then, you know, where where does that leave the liberty? Where are they going to play? Where do they practice? Who's owning them? Who's going to be, you know, do we know for sure Katie Smith's going to be the coach if there's a new buyer? I mean, there's a lot of things that are uh, that are up in the air um, that that we don't know right now. Yeah, I thought it was interesting just the timing, right? Because I, I would guess that they had to know that this could be possibly coming down the pipeline. And to name Katie Smith head coach, I mean, this is a completely, like, awkward situation, I'm sure, for her now. Uh, from what I understand, and I don't know this to be fact because I'm not privy to this information, but Tina Charles is a is a free agent. Um, and if, obviously, it's important that the team stay in New York. Tina did um, ask for a trade because she's from New York. She wanted to play there. But what happens if the team leaves to, you know, some of these moving pieces, including the head coach? And so I I just find the timing of that all so interesting. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, hey, uh, the opportunity is on the table to have a more engaged and more invested owner, right? Because every team could, could possibly find that. Now, you know, with the exception of the Minnesota Lynx, you know, I think, um, Magic has done a good job in L.A. since he's been there. But there are organizations, Indiana Fever, um, that to me have just gone above and beyond. But if this is an opportunity for more of a commitment, then why not, right? Hoping that that actually happens and that the team can stay in New York. My concern is exactly what you said, the accessibility of the team. Because the city can get to Madison Square Garden, Right. You can catch the train right there. Um, you know, their their attendance has seemed to increase, and maybe it's just me, from a game environment standpoint over the last couple of years. They've added uh, so many New York natives to their roster, Bria Hartley, Epiphany Prince, Kia Vaughn. We mentioned Tina Charles. So, you know, Swing Cash is a part of their organization. Um there's just a lot of pieces that, you know, it seemed were coming together so nicely. And so this, to me, was definitely shocking. I mean, as, as one of the original franchises of this league. But, again, I go back to the opportunity to have a more engaged owner um, or ownership group that, you know, may just ha- take a little bit more pride in, in, in owning a WNBA team. Yeah, that's what you would hope would be the case. And the the ones that you mentioned, you know, who have done a really good job. And I think, you know, the the visibility of somebody like a Magic Johnson at games um, is a big thing. Um, you know, it's that that makes a difference. It, it's it's very clear that he really cares. It's not just something that he owns because he felt like he had to do it. He he wanted to do it. He wanted to be involved in it. I think the you know what we saw with the with the Lynx ownership. You know, putting you know, spending a million dollars to put air conditioning in Williams Arena. You know, right. to make that a make that. You know, and, and obviously the, the the you know the Lynx will be happy to be back in Target, but it was understandable that they had to. You know, there had to be renovations. We all knew that with with Target, so they had to be out for one season. But I felt like they did the very best they could in terms of putting them in in very good facilities with the Excel Center for the regular season. Um, in, in uh, you know, in St. Paul, and then doing everything they could to make, you know, the Williams Arena, you know, as WNBA yeah. ready as, as they could. That's what you want to see out of the owners because, you know, you, they do need that kind of visible um, support that the owners really 
care. And let's face it, when the WNBA started, there were some owners that from the NBA side who got involved who, you know, they did it because David Stern told them to do it or asked them to do it. I don't think the hurts were in it. And, you know, that's not the case with the independent owners. You know, they've, they've, they've come in and said, hey, this is what we want. We're, we're in the women's basketball business. So that's what you hope for. Can you, can you get an engaged owner? And then, you know, the, the rest of it is a lot of it is, is infrastructure and facilities. And, and those are big things, especially, I mean, let's be honest, especially in New York. Like you said, you right. have to, you know, you want to have a place that people can get to. Um, it has to be, a, and you know, the players need to be living in a place that's, you know, um, accessible to their practice facility. And there's, there's a lot of things in New York that may be a little bit more complicated, perhaps, than in some other places. But you hope that that can all come together. Yeah, it's definitely. Have you heard anything about Tina Charles at all? Is that your understanding as well, that she's a free agent, or is there... Do you know yeah, about- and I I wasn't sure what her, what, you know, like, to me, like, not knowing that this was all coming down exactly, because I didn't, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it, it's something you can connect the dots at looking back, you know, in retrospect, you can see it a little clearer. I, I mean, I thought was that she was absolutely, you know, a given to stay in New York. Well, now that we, we don't know for sure if the Liberty's a given to stay in New York, so that's another aspect of it. And, and, you know, you pointed out perfectly, this is a team that has come together with a lot of um, local ties, you know, people yeah. who want to be in New York and that New Yorkers relate to. And we know how passionate the Liberty fans are. Those are things that really, you know, you, you, you're concerned about because that's, yeah. that's what made the Liberty. The Liberty has an identity. And that identity, you know, not every team has that strong identity, to be honest. I mean, obviously the Lynx do, you know, but uh, but the Liberty has an identity as a New York franchise with New Yorkers involved and that, that strong tie to the area. And that's what you worry about, you know, for that to be lost, which, you know, heaven forbid, but for that to be lost would be really, really difficult to see. Yeah, and I forgot to mention Teaspoon as well, who's a part of that organization, who's one of the originals and has created such excitement over the course of her playing career, uh, playing in a Liberty jersey. So we will keep our eyes on that. Fans, that is it for the show. want to thank Michelle Vopel for joining us. Uh, we will keep our, our ears and eyes all around in women's basketball. want to send a quick congratulations to Rebecca Lobo, um, who officially had her Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame banner um, hung in uh, Gamble on uh, UConn's campus, and that's exciting news, obviously, right next to Gino Oriema, um, class of 2006. So congratulations to Rebecca Lobo, and uh, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us on Around the Room. Thank you for listening to Around the Rim. Check out more podcasts from ESPN on the ESPN app.